Bruchem Aboyim B'Shem Hashem Berachnuchem Eves Hashem Welcome to our weekly Wednesday night shir. Um, I was strongly considering going two hours tonight instead of one. There's so much to talk about, so much to talk about. But a commitment's a commitment, a time is a time, an hour is an hour, and that's what we keep to. This week is Pashas Vayeshev. The Shabbos preceding Hanukkah. The beautiful holiday of Hanukkah. Next week, the Wednesday night she will be the first night of Hanukkah. Merit Hashem. I'm sure everybody will uh, be polishing the Meneras all week next week, so Wednesday night they can light the Meneras. Tonight is Yud, the night before Yudches Kislev, the 18th day of Kislev. On a personal basis, tonight my family. We have a yard site, the yard site of my father's mother, Rabbi Samirian Basav Yosef. Allah Shalom. And also it marks the Shleishim, 30 days of Luba, Basav Shmuel, Liba Basav Shmuel. So we need to discuss yard site, we need to discuss Shleishim. We discuss Pashvayeshev and even more so Friday Rosh Hashanah Lachasidus Chag Shabachagim Yom Tevavol Yom Tevim. I don't have his name. Yom Tevavol Yom Tevim. And also tonight is the other side of my wife's grandfather, David Abraham, Ben Abraham. But since I never met him, I don't know anything about him, I cannot say anything about him tonight. You test Kislev. Chag Shubachagim. Can you start doing this Yutes Kislev, the Rosh Hashanah of Chassidus, the day that the Alter Rebbe, the first Chabad Rebbe, was freed from prison. A day which marks a milestone for the Jewish nation forever and ever. So, if there's anything left after you get into that bargain. I'd like to take first a few moments to discuss the yard site. David Abraham ben Abraham was a tremendous Baal Tzedakah. And as you know, of course, that it's very, very apropos for this week's Parsha. Ironically, my grandmother Shalomirian Basabiasif was also very involved in the same thing of marrying off orphans, taking into the house, looking after them. I've told the story many times, many of the stories of my grandmother. She was extremely proud of her family of her lineage, extremely proud of Klal Yisrael, of the Jewish nation. I'd like to tell two stories. Nobody ever complained about stories. Two stories exemplifying 
both my grandmother and what I hear from my wife's grandfather. The holy tzaddik Reb Chaim of Tzans, from where we hail, my grandmother Shalom was born in Tzans, as my father Shalom. Reb Chaim of Tzans was known as a tremendous Baal Tzedakah, extremely charitable man. He looked after tens of thousands of poor people. But most importantly, at home there was very, very bare. The bare necessities were there. But most importantly was to marry off orphan children. In the olden days you had to supply a with the dowry you had to supply them with everything they needed for their weddings oh we got snacks out there also <laughs> Muncie. good it's okay don't worry about it as long as the cat didn't come to the shoe yet we're waiting for the Atlanta cat to show up also He looked after, made sure they had their clothing, made sure they had what they needed. And then he himself would come to the wedding and dance and celebrate the wedding as if it was his own child or relative. His son, Rabbi Cheskel of Shinev, was once talking to the Rav of the city Libuchov. And they were sitting at the table at Rav Chaim. And the door opened up. Oops. And a schoolmaster a teacher walked in. And the teacher walked in the door Chaim asked him about marrying off his child. Don't you have a child to marry off? Chaim asked him. And the person said yes, but he did not know when the marriage would be. This is a why not? Chaim asked. And he said, because I cannot afford yet the money for the Shtraimel or the Talis, part of the traditions that they bought for the Chazan. Immediately, Cheskel turned to his father and was shocked. Because as many children have an attitude that people take advantage of their parents, Cheskel was concerned that his father would immediately reach into his pocket to pay out for this. And he turned to the fellow and he said to him, Excuse me, a day or two ago I saw you going and getting a shtalos and a shtraimel. How could you say all of a sudden that that's why you're not making the wedding? Well, the guy was so shocked and so embarrassed, he ran out. Reb Chaim was shocked. He grabbed his face and he was shaking. He was trembling and he said to his son, how could you humiliate somebody like that? How could you embarrass somebody like that? Maybe he didn't pay yet for the talus and the shtraimel that he took. Maybe he needs money for other things, but he said the shtraimel. Because he was embarrassed to say in public that his wife didn't have a dress. What will you answer? After 120 years in the heavenly court for embarrassing somebody like this. Ebi was taken aback by his father's rebuke and immediately ran out to find the man to apologize. And there he saw him standing alone in the street and he started to beg forgiveness. But the fellow would hear of nothing. Finally he said, I will only discuss forgiving you 
in front of Reb Chaim's presence. Let him reside over this cup, over this. And they went back in front of Reb Chaim, Chaim and sons. Abichesko started even crying harder and begging and pleading and saying how he feels so bad and remorse for what he said and did. Chaim turned to the schoolmaster and said, Listen, don't forgive him. Don't forgive him until he decides he's going to pay for the talus and he's going to pay for the shtraimel. And not only that, let him pay for the whole wedding. Until the last shoelace, every expense. Yecheskel said, okay, he would do that. He would pay for everything. And by agreeing to pay for the wedding, the man forgave him. We see in this week's Parsha, a case of a woman that was told that she's going to be burnt She's going to be killed and her reaction was not to strike back. Her reaction was not to humiliate or to put down the person that was sentencing her But rather, she went in a very roundabout way to save her face and save her own life. To save his face. And save his face as well. But the question is, the Pasuk tells us when Yehuda was told that his daughter-in-law, who had married two of his sons, and both of them died, was now pregnant, <coughs> his reaction, Take her out and we shall burn her. Rashi says, why? Rashi, who explains to the little child, in the simplest form, says, why burn her? Why does she deserve to be burnt? And Rashi says, because she was the daughter of Shem, and Shem was a Kayan. And because Shem was a Kayan, and therefore since she sinned, the daughter of a Kayan who sins this way, the, the punishment is, bur- is to be burnt. The Ramban asks a very simple question. A Bas Koyhein is only punishable by death, by being burnt, if she's engaged or married. Tamar was a widow. She was not obligated to anybody. In that case, as the Ramban, why was she to be put to death, to be burned? Another question that Ramban asks, once Yehuda found out that he was the father of the child, he takes off the punishment. If she was indeed, because she was pregnant, Regardless who, what, when, and where, because she became pregnant, she was deemed to be burnt. Why all of a sudden <coughs> was she potter? Why all of a sudden was she exonerated from being burnt? Perhaps we can explain this whole story. 
the fact that that Tamar was sentenced to death to be burnt, it was not because the Torah says that a daughter of a Kayin that sins in such a way needs to be burnt, because the Torah was not given yet. But the nations of the world also had such a din. Hamadina just called me. Okay, we wait. We wait now. The uh, cat from Atlanta to come on. You see, the one up in the upstate didn't give it yet. The general, the nations, all the world, also had this morality issue. The Gidru Atzman, as we saw with the case of Sarah Imenu, that she was not, when they found out she was a married woman and not the brother, sister of Avram, they got so upset, what were you going to do to us, we would have sinned this way. And we find also Shechem was put to death because they tortured what they did with Dina. So if that's the case, it is a worldwide accepted thing that this is not, that it's unacceptable for a woman to live with other men. And just like the Arroyos, the ones that are prohibited to, be, to cohabit with, in general, their punishment was death. The same also. The severity here of the Baskayan was to be put to death. So in that case, the question, why death, why so severe, if she was not engaged or married? Because the entire nation knew. All the world knew that this was not acceptable. According to this, therefore, we can understand that why after we found out that she was pregnant from Yehuda, she was now allowed to live. By the world, if a woman was negligent, let us say, was wayward, and went out and was not respect, self-respectful, was not senua, was not modest, then there was punishable. As it says, when they said about her sister, Are you making our sister, Zaina, a woman that is totally worthless, that has nothing on the street? And therefore, to begin with, he thought Tamar was the same. And therefore he wanted to put her to death, punishable by fire, by flame. When he found out that Yehuda was the father, and she was not, God forbid, a wayward woman, then it was reneged, it was taken back, and she no longer had to be put to death. So we see the abnegation, the Mesidus Nefesh, that Tamar had. Borderline being killed, but didn't say, and didn't try to stop it. I would like to compare this same Mesiris Nefesh to that of my grandmother, Lashalom, that she had during the course of the war, World War II, running from town to town, giving up a, the comfort of a home, a home, the only town, the only house in town, with hot and cold running water in the house. But she gave this all up. She didn't sit and wait. Like unfortunately many, many Jews who waited to go to the slaughter and waited around and said, I'm not leaving my home because maybe, maybe 
they'll like me, maybe they'll like my smile, maybe they'll forgive us, maybe they'll look away. And couldn't leave their physical, couldn't leave their monetary, all that they built up over the years. I'm not chas v'shalom, in any which way, form or fashion, putting down anyone that did not leave. <coughs> but for someone to leave, the sacrifice was so much greater. For someone to leave everything behind and pick up and tell the children, we need to move, we need to go sleep in barns and fields and beg for our food. Sometimes you're going to have to steal coal. Beg for a potato. Leave the luxury of our home. Because we need to save our lives. In the beginning of our Pasha, Yetzir Vatsadik has two dreams. He has a dream that all the stalks that are gathered from his brothers bow down to his. And he has a dream that the stars bow down to him <coughs> and the sun and the moon. Parai in Miketz has two dreams. What is the difference? By Yosef Atzadik, the first dream is the stalks of wheat, which is a physical, mundane world. In the second dream, he's dreaming about the stars, the sun, the moon, which is up in heaven. Parai, on the other hand, first he dreams about animals, which is the living creatures of the world. And then he dreams about stalks of wheat, which is growing. Both mundane, both worldly, but one lower than the other. The first one is higher, and the second one goes lower, and steadily lower. This is the difference between a Jew and a non-Jew. The Jew always looks for heavenly spiritual things, while the non-Jew only wants to know where can I make, what can I do, what can I amass in the physical world. And not only that, but the Jews cease to it always to strive to get higher and higher. The previous Lubavitcher Rebbe said, when he was sitting in jail in Soviet Union, and one of the invest- one of his t- interrogators <coughs> pointed a gun to his forehead to make him confess to doing a sin against the government. He said, this toy only frightens somebody that has many gods and has only one world. Mashenki and I have only one god and I have two worlds. And therefore... I look forward to going to Elam Haba. In 1843, the Tsarist government of Russia called a rabbinical conference. They wanted to discuss various matters of Jewish life. Basically, they wanted to enlighten the Jewish nation. They wanted the Jewish nation to modernize. They wanted the Jewish nation to become a little more worldly. One of the people chosen was the Tzemach Tzedek, Rabbi Nachmendel Lubavitch, the third Luchabad Rebbe. And then there was Rabbi Yitzchak of Olozhin. There was a magnate of Berdichev, whose name was Rabbi Sol Eilperin. And then there was the headmaster of the school in Odessa, Bitzal Stern. 
When the Tzemach Tzedek returned, they heard about tremendous things that he did and things that he stuck up for Judaism and would not renege and would not back off on anything. Would not say, would not accept any, nothing was acceptable to him except for the 100% of Judaism. And then Tzemach Tzedek returned and he said, and he heard, Chassidim was saying, Ah! Oh, the Rebbe was Mesa Nefesh himself. The Rebbe had such self-sacrifice. The sake of Bnei Yisrael, of Am Yisrael, for the Jewish nation. When the Rebbe heard this, he burst out crying. And the Rebbe said, you call this Mesidus Nefesh? You don't begin to know what this means. You're saying, I sacrificed myself for Kalal Yisrael? This is not called sacrifice at all. I may even have had self-interest for my own good. Nothing that I did was worthy of saying that it was self-sacrifice. You want to know what real self-sacrifice is? He had self-sacrifice. He had self-sacrifice, not for himself, not for a, but for a fellow Jew, and not a fellow Jew of stature, not a fellow Jew that was somebody special, and not only for the fellow Jew, not to save his life, but he's had sacrifice to save the man's money, to save the man's livelihood. And the Rebbe told his Chassidim the following story with the Baruch HaMezhebush. Rebbe Baruch had a disciple, a God-fearing man, a wonderful Chassid. And he was a wine merchant. And he would get wine from the wholesalers. And they would give it to him on consignment. They trusted him. He was a trustworthy fellow. A great guy. Everybody loved him. Take what you need. And they knew that eventually he would come back with the money. So he would take the wine and then he would go out and peddle the wine. One night he was by an inn and it entered his mind listen to this listen what a chassid of the olden days was it entered his mind that there was a certain matter not really a sin but something he didn't do right he admits that he didn't do 100% and he had not yet repented fully for it he has not done a full tshuva what do you do when you have something that you want to do tshuva for, when you want to improve yourself, you go to your Rebbe. So he picked himself up in the middle of the night, he left his wagons of wine, and he ran to Mezhebush to go to the Baruch to tell him about his Aveda that he did. <coughs> and to ask him how to do tshuva. The Baruch heard that he left this entire batch of wine by the inn, a few miles away, he started to berate him, to scold him. You fool what you are. How did it ever enter your head that you leave your property for nothing? <coughs> because you decided you didn't have Ada? At this point already, it was Friday afternoon. And before Shabbos, he couldn't go back to the inn anymore. He had to stay in Mezhebush. And before Shabbos, Baruch saw him again and again berated him and screamed at him. And the whole Shabbos long, every time he saw him in front of Shul, in front of everybody, he would scream and yell at him, you idiot, you moron, you fool! And all the other names that you could text today. <laughs> That's a lot of names. Yeah. Avram <laughs> of Chemelnik was a Mechutin with a Baruch HaMezhbush. They had done a Shidduch together. Finally he turns to the Baruch and says, Mechutin, what's wrong with you? How 
how do you humiliate a fellow Jew in front of everybody like this? Don't you know the punishment, the sin? And Rabbanon says, I know very well that someone who embarrasses somebody else in public has no world to come. He loses his world to come. I decided it's worth it for me to lose my share in the world to come. To do this Jew a favor. Let me tell you, he has many wagons full of wine. He had to hire drivers to take it. The drivers were not Jewish. They were conspiring, the drivers. They were talking between themselves. They're going to rob all the wine. If that would happen, it would leave him broke. And in heaven, a decree was on him that this should actually happen. That it should get stolen and he should be wiped out. But because I made him such pain, because I caused him such embarrassment, because I put him so down throughout the whole Shabbos, heaven said he had enough. The punishment, the embarrassment was enough, was sufficient. And therefore now he can get back everything that he owned. This, says the Tzermach Tzedek, is true Mesiris Nefesh for a Jew. This is how you sacrifice for yourself, from yourself, for a fellow Jew. When you go out on the limb, and you give up your entire world to come, not to save a Jew's life, to save his livelihood even. Such a trivial thing, comparatively. That is what's called Mesiris Nefesh. This is therefore, when I talk about a yard site of my grandmother, she was truly my Nefesh. So much so, ironically, comes out Pash Vayeshev Hayatzai this year. And Pash Vayeshev begins Vayeshev Yaakov. Yaakov settled. <laughs> he settled down. Yaakov was taking a break. And what does Rashi tell us? Vayeshev Yaakov. Because Yaakov, the Shevaz Mishalva. Yaakov decided it's time to retire. I had enough. I did enough in life. Says the Abishta. Kafat Allah Regze Shayesef. This entire episode of pain that he was subjected to with his son, his loving son that he loved so much. Yesef Atzadik. Attacked him. And thereby not allowing him to relax. Let's understand that. <coughs> Let's understand what happened. Yaakov Avinu was known as the Bechir Shabbos. He was the most out of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Yaakov was the greatest one. Avram Avinu had a son, Yishmael. And Yitzchak Avinu had a son, Esav. Yaakov Avinu had Mitosei Shlema. All his children were perfect. They were all righteous. The Bechir Shabbos wanted to take a break. Die! I had enough. Basta! At the end, at the end, we see he gets a break. He goes down to Egypt and he lives 17 years. Beautiful. Phenomenal. He has servants. He lives in the lap of luxury in the beautiful part of Egypt called Goshen. A zip code of its own. 
He lives in Goshen and everybody worships him. They, they, they kiss the ground he walks on. He has a great, great end of his life. For 17 years, he is enjoying life. He actually gets his Miami Beach vacation. No. So was it so wrong that he wanted to retire? But the thing was, at this point in time, when Yaakov wanted to settle down, he was not ready. He had not accomplished enough in the world. All that Yaakov had done, he was not yet accomplished enough. And therefore God brought upon him the Rezeh Shal Yasef. To elevate Yaakov to even a higher level, the Yaakov, as holy and great as he was, he needed to be elevated yet higher. And this is what God did to him with this whole story of Yasef. Until he was ready to settle in this world. We know, of course, that when a person serves God in pain and in harsh conditions, the person elevates to a much higher level. As we know, then we take olive, we take oil out of an olive. If you squeeze it, you get the oil out. And if you squeeze it thoroughly, you get out the last every last drop out of it. So it needs to be put under tremendous pressure to take every drop out. For those keeping score at home, the Gemara Menachis, Nun Gimel Amid Beis, 53, side 2. Moitzi Shamne. So the same is here. Through Yaakov's service, under the situa- under the conditions of Reigze Shal Yasef, the mourning and the pain and the the torture that he was going through for the years that he was separated from his son Yasef, he merited the last seventeen years of his life. To settle down. Understand, please. A person, if a person loses somebody, if someone passes away, unfortunately, we were given a little concept called shikha, forgetful. And the pain that we have when a person dies, the crying that we did when the person passed away at 70 years old, my grandmother was 70 years old. And at 70 years old, she just lied down and was gone. And we cried and we cried that whole week. We stopped crying very quickly for her because she died on the 18th day of Kislev and 10 days later her son of 38 years old was killed. In a car accident. So we, the family basically had Shiva two weeks in a row. So we didn't have time really to mourn and to cry for my grandmother. All of a sudden we were in shock, thrown into shock for my uncle of blessed memory. But 37 years later, we're not crying really anymore. Although my father, all of a sudden, very interestingly, five or six years ago, I took him to his mother's grave on the day of our site. He was barely able to walk. And he squeezed through the tombstones. And he was leaning on his mother's tombstone, holding on. And he was shaking, trembling, crying. And I said, Ta, Ta, Bobby's gone 32 years. 31 years, whatever, 30 or 30, 31 or 32 years. How are you crying like that? And he turned to me with red eyes. He was crying. 
And he said, I miss my mother. She was gone over 30 years. He didn't cry every day that he missed his mother. It was a yard site and it was a time to remember. But he missed his mother. So although we don't cry the same way that we did in the beginning, we tend to forget. But if the person is not dead, the person is just absentee, you cannot get that out of your heart. And Yaakov Avinu had this intuition that Yosef was not dead. Although they brought him the coat, and it was red with blood, and they, he said himself, oh, he must have been eaten by a wild animal. But he knew that he was not dead. And he could not come to himself. He could not console himself. This separation of him and Yosef Atzadik was too much. So these years, Yosef was not just that Yosef was taken away and he cried for a few days. Every day until he saw Yosef, he cried. This elevated him. And therefore, because it's so awkward, Vayeshev Yaakov means he settled calmly. And what do we talk about in the Pasha? Yosef being sold and tortured, and his dear life, his whole neshama, is torn out of his soul. His heart is cut out, Yaakov, because his dear son Yosef was taken away. But yet the Pasha is named Vayeshev. That he settled. How? This was anything but pleasant. He was anything but lucky, huh? <laughs> so according to this though we understand that the service of Yaakov being under the stress, the duress, the pain and the pressure of Reigzei Yasef. This is what brought about that he was able to be Sheves Beshalva, Leisha Beshalva. And that's why Vayeshev, the whole Parsha, is all about preparation of Yaakov being able to settle properly. And that's why the name of the Parsha is Vayeshev. My grandmother, Shalom, did not rest. In Siberia, in Poland, in France, in Brooklyn, New York, there was no rest for her. She never rested on her laurels. She never sat down and said, Okay, Kindelachichamanskatin. Every Friday, everybody lined up. It would come to pay homage and pick up. She cooked for everybody gefilte fish and potato kegel. Yeah. My grandfather was sitting and peeled the potatoes. And my grandmother would stand and fry the potato kugel. Oh, yes. It was oh, wow. That's exactly what it was. And <laughs> I must say, very rarely did anybody in my house taste the potato kugel. Because from the ride from my mother, grandmother's house, the three and a half blocks to my house, we all ate the kugel in the car already. It was terrible. But she came, she arrived in America. <laughs> she was the first woman to enter the yeshiva's dormitory, the boys' dormitory. Probably the only woman too. She came in to investigate where her boys are going to be. And she saw the disarray and the disgusting conditions that they were living in the boys. The mattresses that lacked, to say the least, lacked some hay. The sheets that didn't exist. And some didn't have blankets or pillows. She immediately didn't walk around, didn't write on a website, didn't put on a blog, didn't go put an ad in the papers how terrible the yeshiva is. She went out and collected money and ran to the stores and found the best price. 
and bought the linen and bought the blankets and bought them and dropped everything off in the yeshiva so the boys should live like human beings to improve their condi- living conditions. She didn't ask for a prize. She didn't ask for flowers. She didn't ask for a plaque. She didn't ask for recognition. She did this because this had to be done. This is how she lived her entire life. The only time I ever saw her sitting down was during choir practice. My grandfather was a chazan, as was my father all of a shalom. My father was the ninth generation. And my grandfather in his shul used to have to have concerts two or three times a year. So the concerts, he needed to have a choir. Who's the choir? <laughs> Me! Me, my cousins. My grandfather wrote the music. He didn't even dream of making us learn how to read music. But he lined us all up around his piano. He would hit the keys and teach us the music. Or sometimes he took for granted that we knew it before he taught it to us. And immediately we scream, Zinx Falch! He would <laughs> leash, unleash on us. Sometimes his wrath. No, he never said such things. And my grandmother would sit on the side, canelling, enjoying the beautiful music, the sound of the canaries that sounded like the backstreet cats. And she would smile from ear to ear. And if, she, if Zayda ever said anything not complimentary, she said, Thrul! Lost up the kinder. Leave the children alone. So as our yard side tonight, we say the Chaim and the Shamash have an Aliyah. She should be a good better. She should help out the Yeshiva as she did then. She should help us out now because we need her help more than ever. Help out all her children and grandchildren. We're hopefully going to bring her tomorrow a little list. Make her very happy. All the great-grandchildren that need to get married. It's only about 25 names or 30 names that really need to get married quick. I don't appreciate it. It's recorded. And she should prevail that everything that we need, we should have, all the children. We should be able to be Shevas Bishalva. We should be able to sit in peace and tranquility, in love and in harmony. Luba, on her 30th day now, as I'm saying Kaddish now for the month, and continue to say for the next 10 months, also was an extremely, extremely active woman. But like I said, I'm not going to go to two hours tonight. We're only going to keep to one. So if, God willing, tomorrow the family wants to get together to celebrate her 30th day, either be in Westchester or Long Island, wherever it might be, I will then give my hour there for that. Yutes Kislev. The Altarebbe is freed from prison. <laughs> they have on the children's tapes. They have all different stories. You have also history. We have the story of Purim, the story of Hanukkah. It's all done, what used to be done on tapes, and now on CDs, now online, whatever you want to do. Them. So one of the stories of Purim, one of them says, I'm home. And his wife says, big deal. Okay, okay, please. Al Tarebbe got freed from prison. This is a couple of hundred years ago, my friend. Big deal. Give it up. But no, we don't. Not only we don't, it's a Rosh Hashanah L'Chassidus. When the last time Yutesh Kislev came out on Friday, the Rebbe was... The Rebbe insisted... That Chassidim don't leave 770. 
over Shabbos. We sat, Chassidim sat in Fabreng, we didn't, I didn't, I didn't, can't say for myself. Chassidim sat, they came on Friday afternoon, and did not leave 770 until Saturday night. Because the Kayach of Yutas Kislev carried over, and Chassidim Fabrengd, celebrating this moment, where Chassidus was liberated. As the Altarebbe sat in prison in this one, this small cell, barely capable of moving around, I couldn't fit there. he had two visitors, the Baal Shem Tov and the Magid. And they told him, you have opened up a tremendous kitrug. You have now began a tremendous upheaval in heaven. And the Satan is going off his mind about what you have done here by bringing Hasidus into the world. So the Alter Rebbe said, so should I stop? And they said, God forbid, when you get out, you have to go stronger and stronger. No such thing as the Sheves Bishalva. No such thing as sitting down now on your laurels. You started it, you need to go now. You need to now forge ahead. You need to now fight that the world knows what happens here. And although Yosef went down to Mitzrayim, Yosef goes down to Egypt and is purchased by Potiphar. <coughs> but this is not the purpose for him to become a slave. Yosef himself remained Yosef, as we've discussed many times in Pashas Vayechi. That Yasef died in Mitzrayim. Yasef died meaning that no matter what people did and changed their names, etc., Yasef was Yasef and did not change his name. And when Yasef was taken by his brothers and he was thrown into the ditch, Ruvain said, Let's not kill him yet. Throw him in the ditch until I get back. And they looked, and behold, the ditch was empty, and there was no water. Those keeping score at home, Mesech the Shabbos, Chav in the beginning of Amr Aleph, on side 22, side A, the beginning, where we go into the Sugya of Chanukah, Rashi tells us, quoting from the Gemara, Mayim Eimboi, Aval Nechashim Vakravim Yezboi. There was no water, Eimboi Mayim, but there were snakes and scorpions. The Chazal tells us, the Gemara tells us, for those keeping score at home, Baba Kama, Yud Zayin Amar Aleph, 17 Sayre. Ein mayim elotera. Water. What does the word water refer to? When the tera says water, it means tera. And we could say perhaps with a hint. By a person, if ain by mayim, if a person is not have water, if he's lacking water, and his mind is not totally entrenched and involved in the study of Teda, and in the service to God, then the Teda says, Nechoshim vakravim yeshpai, that his mind will be filled with snakes and scorpions. Klippei sitra achrach other worldly, frivolous things. And even when doing things that you're allowed to do, you have to go to work. You need to concentrate on the facts and figures. You need to know if the person paid enough taxes. 
You need to know how to extinguish a fire. You need to know where the root of the fire is, where it starts, where to get to the bottom of it. What windows can I break? What windows should I not break? What's going to feed more air and feed fuel to the fire? And what will I, where will I pour water that will ultimately get to the bottom of it? Yes, I need to do all those things. Those are not frivolous, that's my livelihood. That's what I need to do. But throughout that time, the person may never forget that they need to serve God. Because immediately when Ain by Mayim, if you're selling eyeglasses or if you're serving Kashavanishkis and Farfal. Yeah. If you ain't by Mayim, you're not thinking about Teda, oh, yeah, yeah. then Then you're allowing the snakes and scorpions, heaven forbid, to enter the system. The Baal Shem Tov says, and it's brought down from the Baal Shem Tov, in a safer called Savos Harivash, which some say was and some say not, written by the Baal Shem Tov. When it says, Visartem Vavadatem, you will turn away and you will serve. When a person when he, God forbid, separates himself from God, he's immediately serving Avedizara. He's doing idol worship. There's no happy medium. You must think about God. If you're not thinking about God, then God forbid, you're going in the wrong direction automatically. There's no options to that. This is therefore what the Alter Rebbe gives us. Not gave us 300 years ago, but gives us on a constant basis. The fact that the Alter Rebbe was freed from prison, and that the Alter Rebbe gave us Chsidus, and the Alter Rebbe gives us the Koyach to learn Chsidus, this is what we need to strive. This is the drive we need to have this is the approach we need to take in order to continue and to survive so that we can cry out. And it's now the situation here in Brooklyn, Rahman and hopefully it gets contained quickly. As is worldwide, the anti Semitism is getting rampant. They're just beating up on Jews in the middle of the street here. And someone writes about it and they say, where is Mayor Kahana when we need him? And Mayor Kahana's slogan was, Am Yisrael Chai. The Jewish nation lives on. But this is not his slogan. This he did not create. He did not invent this. He did not invent the wheel. But rather, this is time in history that the Jewish nation lives on Vayeshev Yaakov, Yaakov settles, and Yaakov shows us how to serve God. And as we'll continue with the other Pashas, and as we prepare ourselves now for the Hanukkah, for the wonderful holiday of Hanukkah, a project was taken on for Luba, Lights for Luba, where we asked, at the funeral, and we continue hashtag. asking. I believe you can hashtag it. Is that what it is? Yes. yes. You can tweet Lights for Luba. Facebook, Twitter. On Facebook, on Twitter, Lights for Luba is, is a light. It's lighting up the world. Hanukkah, the holiday of lights. No Jewish home should be without Menada. No Jewish home should be without a Menada lit in their house. If your neighbor, if a friend, if anyone you know doesn't have a menorah, see to it that you encourage them to either buy one or buy one for them. And see to it that each and every Jew lights a menorah this Hanukkah so that we take the light of the menorah and it will light our way. And before that even, Vayeshev Yaakov, we should settle and we should be able to settle the Shalva in Eretz Yisrael, in Arzeno Akdesha. And Chag Shebechagim should be celebrated in Eretz Yisrael. 
And at the yard site, the Bala yard site, Yasef, Miriam Bes Yasef, and David Avraham ben Avraham, and Libe Shmuel should fulfill the prophecy and they all will rejoice and all will sing and dance and will all join them in Yerushalayim, Yerakadosh, Shabbat, Shalom and Chag Sameach, Gut Yom Tif to all.